You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. We, we, we still have people uh, dying unnecessarily of, of preventable diseases. Later in the program, Civic Conversations, a collaboration between WFHB and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. This month, we are joined by health officer Dr. Clark Britton and board member George Hegman of the Monroe County Health Department Board. More in the bottom half of the show. Okay, what we saw just now was exactly what we have been talking about this whole time. Also coming up in the next half hour, an excerpt from KiteLine's latest episode on the Stop Cop City protest in Atlanta, Georgia. But first, your local headlines. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on November 29th, Health Department Director Lori Kelly gave an update on COVID-19 and flu cases in the community. Good morning. Uh, Just a few updates for you today. So according to the Indiana Department of Health website, COVID-19 cases and wastewater concentration levels have increased as of November 21st. Influenza-like illnesses, which include a fever of 100 degrees or higher, along with a cough or sore throat, have seen increased reports statewide um, with both healthcare providers and emergency rooms. The CDC does recommend that all individuals aged six months and older, except in rare circumstances, receive an annual flu shot. We do have flu shots, updated COVID vaccines, and RSV for adults 60 and older at our public health clinic on 333 Miller Drive, and you can call 812-353-3244. Later in the meeting, County Attorney Jeff Cockrell introduced an interlocal agreement with the City of Bloomington to confirm the initial establishment of a Capital Improvement Board. Cockrell gave some history on the agreement, which was put on hold during the pandemic. Um, I think it's important to note that the the vast majority of things in this document were in a document that we had on our servers from 2019, 2020, before the pandemic, when we were approaching this this level of of, uh, understanding at that point in time. Uh, So and then, of course, we all know the pandemic hit and then this project of the convention center expansion kind of got put on hold. And then when we restarted the the conversations last fall, um, we talked about it. And I I think we've working with the city, we came to the conclusion that the CIB was indeed the right mechanism, but we needed to work out uh, some of the issues. I believe you're the the commissioners passed an ordinance creating the CIB last November, and it gave a deadline of December, the end of December before to get it to get it approved. It didn't ultimately get approved, but we got information from the city that that led to, you know, kind of revisiting this this whole interlocal idea. And that's why we went back to the 19 document because it, we were talking about the same issues back then. And so in, in my mind, the, the, the biggest item that this, this covers is the fact that both the city council and the county council have to approve the budget for both the 
for, for the for the operation and use of the convention center and the CVC and and, our, and and essentially the whole tourism industry. And so, to me, that's the that's the big component of this. Now that and I think everybody agrees to that. So it's it's not the one that's most talked about. But I but I always want I want I stressed it last night. I want to stress it today that I think that's the biggest component of this document. Commissioner Julie Thomas asked if they could take more time before approving the agreement, as she wasn't comfortable with all of its items. There are a lot of shells and mays and um, bits and pieces in here that I'm not entirely comfortable with um, in terms of um, ensuring that this is a project that reflects both county and city interests. That's that's the basis of my concern. During public comment on the agreement, a Capital Improvement Board member, John Weikart, shared that the new interlocal agreement would temporarily pass off the management of the building, which he did not believe is necessary. I'm, I'm reminded, and I, I don't mean this to be critical, I'm reminded that there's a story that um, uh, God assigned a committee uh, to create a horse. And when they were finished, they presented the design of a camel. And it wasn't that they were not well-meaning in doing that. It's just that sometimes committees, people on committees have various things they're looking at. Others are not. Uh, I know this was a very complicated issue. I know the county, I don't speak for the county council, obviously. I know their interest, as I understand it, was in the CVC appointments, perhaps not in other areas in particular. Um, I'm retired, so I can read stuff, and I obsess over stuff. So I can read the interlocal agreement, I can read the, your, your ordinance, and then just mull over it. So that's how I stand before you this morning. It strikes me that there are um, a couple of questions I would encourage you to look at. Um, one is that it appears to me that the interlocal agreement uh, changes your CIB ordinance in terms of who's appointed to the CIB. There are new exclusions added. Uh, an exclusion you had has been taken out. Uh, and perhaps that was uh, intentional, perhaps it was not, but I would encourage you to, to give thought to whether that's what you actually intended. Uh, the CIB ordinance uh, gave to the CIB uh, the authority for, uh, among other things, management and operations of the convention center. Uh, the interlocal agreement would initially transfer that management and operations to the nonprofit city uh, building corporation. Uh, I think implied is that the CIB will be so busy with construction and design that management and operations may be something that can be forestalled until a later date. And I would suggest that we're quite capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. And that originally in the CIB ordinance, we were given that task. Uh, in our very first meeting, we said we had no intention of doing anything other, frankly, than maintaining the status quo in terms of management and operations. So I don't know, I, I don't know why, perhaps you do, why that would be assigned for a period of time to a building corporation. Then with language that says when it's reasonably practicable, we, it will be reassigned to us uh, in a negotiated contract. So I would... I would suggest the CIB is quite capable of managing and operating the facility without that back and forth two-year, uh, what could be a two-year process of switching that back and forth. 
Cockerell added the management of the convention center would remain within the city and the county until it would go back to the Capital Improvement Board. And I'd also like to just correct, potentially correct one thing, is that the the, the document does never gives the operation and management of the facility to that third-party entity. It, re, it is retained with either the with the city or with the county and the CVC contract until a point in time where the construction is completed, then it would be transferred to the CIB. So that it, it never lands with the not-for-profit 501 Commissioner Penny Givens shared concerns that were brought up at the Monroe County Council meeting the day before. Their main concern being that county council members would not be allowed to be appointed to the board. But also, the way this is written right now, it excludes a member of the county council from serving on the CBC. Right, right, it does. It does. And I don't know that that's what we want to have happen. Thomas added that it was unfortunate the agreement was announced by the city as a done deal and said that there are things that need to be clarified before approving it. Um, it is unfortunate that this was announced as a done deal because I don't know where that came from, but um, it's not and it shouldn't be. And we need to make sure that we are um, not revising parts of the CIB that we've already agreed to um, in that agreement. And we need to make sure that we're following state statute and we need to make sure that we have a plan and exit strategy if we need it. I think there are things that are spelled out here that have already been written in the CIV. So I'm not sure why they're reiterated, um, but there are also a lot of things that needs further explanation and um, clarification and specification and detail. So um, looking forward to seeing where this goes. Uh, I certainly am hopeful that we can get something done um, at the end of the year or early next year. Givens proposed that they look at the agreement for a little longer and work on what amendments they would like to make. The commissioners postponed the decision on the agreement. The Monroe County Board of Commissioners will meet again on December 6th. Up next, Civic Conversations, a collaboration between WFHB and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. This month on Civic Conversations, we are joined by Health Officer Dr. Clark Britton and Board Member George Hegeman of the Monroe County Health Department Board. In our discussion, we tackled the Health Department's role in numerous services. With the recent legislative allocations towards Indiana's public health, Dr. Britton talked about the amounts received and how that money would be spent in Monroe County through the Indiana Health First Initiative. We now turn to Civic Conversations on the WFHB Local News. Listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB. I'm Becky Hill, your host. Jim Allison is on vacation. We are pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations each month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FN. You can also find the podcast on the League website. We are pleased to welcome today's guest, Dr. Clark Britton. 
and George Hageman of the Monroe County Public Health Board. They are here to talk about public health in Monroe County. Welcome to both of you. My first question is, tell me what the role of the Board of Health is and what their core functions are. George, can you help me with that? The uh, Board of Health is kind of like the uh, Board of Directors, which governs or directs the uh, health department. It's appointed by the county commissioners, seven members, uh, all in health-related professional areas as their expertise. And it meets about, uh, well, monthly lately. Uh, and all of the meetings are available to the public, uh, open to the public. The core functions of the department are firstly to uh, deal with health matters. And the health officer is the chief person who um, oversees the operation. Uh, and that person is before you and the person of Dr. Britton today. Under um, him comes uh, Lori Kelly, who is the health department administrator, and she deals with the details of the departmental uh, functioning from day to day. And that includes two clinics, one of which is the Futures Family Planning Clinic, which is located in the uh, health building on the corner of 7th and and uh, and college, and then the other clinic is the major clinic, the uh, Monroe County Public Health Clinic, over on Miller Drive, about a block north of of uh, Walnut Street on Miller Drive. Out of that uh, clinic is run many many different programs, nurses and and immunizations and and things of that sort. Under the health department as such that is located in the health building on 7th and, and uh, College are environmental protection, people who deal with swimming pools, lead, radon, uh, any kind of toxin in the environment. And they go out and work with the emergency management people if there's a spill uh, from, say, an overturned uh, uh, truck out on the major roads. All of the food protection people are located in that building. Uh, they do the um, licensing of restaurants, inspection of the restaurants, uh, training of the food handlers um, who work in the restaurants. There's also health education, uh, people who go out and work in the schools or with other uh, groups of various kinds talking about sexually transmitted and other diseases which are of public health interest. Then there are the uh, wastewater people who are on-site wastewater. They deal with septic systems, leaking septage, locating septic systems that may be in conflict with utilities, that sort of thing. And finally, uh, the role that almost everybody knows from the health department, that is vital statistics, birth certificates and death certificates. Tell me, Dr. Britton, what do you think are the biggest issues we face today in public health? Well, that's a little bit of a loaded question, and I, I'll, I'll try to keep it medical. Um, we, we, we still have people uh, dying unnecessarily of, of preventable diseases. Um, 
and and some of our role in in the public health sphere is education um and i think i, I talked about this earlier we know from lots of really good studies that a dollar spent on prevention saves seven dollars to the community so um what what the the state of indiana has recognized along those same lines is that if if we put more money into prevention uh, we can spend less money on fixing problems and so this past legislative session um, uh, health first indiana or sb1 uh, was passed and it and it funded um, the public health in Indiana much higher than had been funded in the past. Seventy five million dollars for fiscal twenty four and and one hundred fifty million for twenty five, and, and that's many times more dollars than have been spent in the past. It's still probably not enough, but it's so much better than it was, and so we're able to address things like uh, disease prevention, education. Uh, and 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 part of the the funding in in that bill goes for people who can get the word out. George mentioned uh, we're in the schools and and we want to get the word out as much as we can. Healthy lifestyles and so forth. Um, we have um, a needle exchange program that 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 can help people um, if if they're going to do something stupid like uh, injecting. Uh, toxic things at least use clean needles and that can that alone has been shown to decrease the incidence of hiv and hepatitis c which are enormous financial burdens for the community um and and as you know from recent experience we've had to deal with covid monkeypox um meningitis um th things that um make people really nervous and and sometimes they're lethal problems and and there's ways to prevent these things from getting you vaccinations and isolation and and uh, risk reduction measures and so we're working hard to get the word out on all of those things and and that's kind of a daily uh, commitment within the health department we have as george alluded to we've got um uh people doing safety measures to help prevent um, contamination of drinking water by safe septic systems, uh, food inspections in, in restaurants to help prevent salmonella outbreaks and this sort of thing. And so even though it's a, it's a, a silent, not very glamorous thing, it, 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 it works and it is what has helped us evolve from an average lifespan of about 47 years of age uh, in 1900 to uh, 80 years of age in, um, in 2020. And in fact, uh, just for what it's worth, in the state of Indiana, Monroe County is the third longest longevity lifespan in the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. okay. could you, Dr. Britton, could you repeat again? I, I know that Monroe County opted in to the Indiana Health First Initiative, which was the legislative. Um, allocation of money and how yeah. much was that again for monroe county so the the total amount for the state was 75 million for 24 150 million for 25 okay. if you do the math and the numbers of people that opted in or the counties that opted in and the population of those counties our take on that is a little over a million and a half dollars does increase the... increase funding for the the okay. the county health department. Okay. 
that does over it, and above what it has been in the past. Does the department have a plan on how they're going to spend that money? And how are they, where do they hope to allocate the bulk of that money? So, uh, of course, as you might imagine, it came with strings and um, guidelines. And so there's a percentage that has to go to certain things. And and Lori Kelly is a really fine uh, administrator of the health department and has come up with some suggestions and and we're working through that a lot of it's going to go into extra personnel and ability to do more inspections and more education more outreach okay and you know i know that the 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 current per resident public health cost is 55 dollars, with the national average being 91 per capita i mean is it higher or lower in monroe county george you want to take that I think it's lower in Monroe County for a couple of reasons. Historically, there has been relatively little funding, as Dr. Ritten noted. Uh, but also, we've got so many students in the county that it sort of distorts our population a bit. So we can offer the services for the the people in, in general, and then the university handles a lot of, well, essentially half our population for half the year. So... Uh, that that tends to uh, distort things a bit. But yes, it's been low, but it's getting better. We're about approaching the national average at this point per capita. Okay. And and as you said, Dr. Britton, the focus is going to be on preventative. Am I right? Yes. Okay. All right. But 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 again, you know, we're we're doing inspections and we're finding things as of they course. happen, but we're trying to be a little more proactive than reactive. One of the striking things is that we have to deal with climate change. New diseases are emerging as the climate changes and and as the uh, new vectors like mosquitoes and ticks uh, and sand flies come north and, and uh, bedevil us together with their parasites, which are transferred to us to make us sick. Well, and one of the things that the Department of Health has started doing is testing the wastewater. Is that right? I mean, to, I mean, during COVID, it was tested. Am, am I correct in that? Actually, the City of Bloomington Utilities Department tests for the presence of viral RNA, COVID nineteen RNA, in the wastewater. And there's about a, um, I think, a, a five day advance peak in the. COVID-19 RNA found in the wastewater flow uh, in advance of what is actually seen in, in people presenting themselves in physicians' offices and at the hospital. So it's a predictive measure, and it, it is a test, yes. Well, thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Becky Hill of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact our lives. Next month, we welcome author Anita Morgan to talk about her new book, We Must Be Fearless, The Women's Suffrage Movement in Indiana. Up next, we present a portion of Kite Line, a public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond on WFHB. 
This excerpt comes from their most recent episode on the Stop Cop City protest in Atlanta, Georgia. Tune in tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. or visit WFHB.org to listen to the full program. We turn now to that segment of Kite Line on the WFHB Local News. The music you hear is being performed by Muskogee musicians at the recent Block Cop City Rally in Atlanta. Since 2021, a diverse movement in the area has challenged the construction of Cop City, which is slated to destroy Atlanta's South River Forest. The forest is also known by its Muskogee name, Wilani. The movement has created new intersections between abolitionist and environmental politics because it's defending a forest that has important ecological elements for the surrounding black community. In the movement's latest phase, a new coalition called Block Cop City made an ambitious proposal for mass nonviolent action. That action forced the city to suspend construction for that day, and it has not resumed construction in the many days since. Here are selections from the statement issued by Block Cop City about the mobilization. On the morning of Monday, November 13th, a procession of roughly 500 people marched along a public road to the proposed site of Cop City construction site holding banners and giant puppets, and accompanied by drummers and a brass band. Block Cop City activists worked to reclaim Atlanta's rich civil rights legacy from politicians who continue to tarnish it with voter disenfranchisement and extreme police brutality. Despite the violent response by police, activists minimized arrests and injuries from police. The march began with a festive gathering in Gresham Park where participants adopted an explicit commitment to nonviolence and heard from Kamal Franklin, executive director of Atlanta-based community movement builders, and Joel Pais, father of Tortuguita, a forest offender murdered by police in the forest in January. Kamal Franklin had this to say, quote, Now is not a time for cowardice. You're either with the oppressed or with the oppressors. You're either with the people or the pigs. You cannot stand in the middle. You cannot be on both sides. You cannot close your eyes to the terror of policing that happens in this world. Joel Pais, Tortuguita's father, also encouraged the protesters, quote, We are going to continue defending the forest. We are going to continue defending the legacy of Tortuguita. We are a family. You are my family. Unquote. Once the march was underway, it took less than an hour for the police to declare it illegal and a striking similarity to the 1965 march from Selma to Montgomery. Despite numerous stated commitments from religious leaders and city officials to honor the right to protest, armed riot police terrorized the crowd with tear gas, attack dogs, clubs, and ballistic shields. Mary Hook, field secretary for the Movement for Black Lives, reflected on the police response to the protest. Quote, we just witnessed overt violations of our civil rights on a road named after the U.S. Constitution. Atlanta claims itself to be a civil rights hub, but it erases its legacy when protests arise that confront the power of politicians and police. Today's police violence against protesters affirms our belief that Cop City must never be built." Unquote. As other protesters took to
to planting tree saplings in the Wilani forest, journalists were forcibly separated and threatened with arrest by police. We condemn this infringement of these journalists' rights, as well as the arrest of protesters, including the indigenous activists arrested while visiting Tortuguita's altar in the forest over the weekend. A statement from the movement reflects determination and courage in the face of police terror. Quote, the movement to stop Cop City and defend the Atlanta forest is undeterred by today's police aggression, unquote. Finally, movement spokesperson Sam Beard shared this at the rally, quote, the city of Atlanta's actions against this movement under the leadership of Andre Dickens have been draconian, but we remain committed to the opposite, building a world free of police violence and repression where all of us can thrive, unquote. Okay, what we saw just now was exactly what we have been talking about this whole time. The cops are so afraid of nonviolence, so afraid of a mass act of civil disobedience. They beat people, they tear gassed people, and they shot us with pepper spray and flashbang grenades designed to terrify us. And that is what they do, and that is what they will always do. Uh, but we're not giving up, we're staying together, and we're regrouping right now. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. <laughs>